Nancy Badeau is headed toward the back with some others, and Children's Church. Children follow her to the back, back there, and we'll be praying as they head out. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful for our children as they head off to Children's Church. Bless them and those who work with them this morning, and may they have a wonderful time of learning about your love and growing in their faith. And as we open the Bible here this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and convict us, Lord, encourage us, challenge us, that we might become the best Christians that we can be as we live for you in this wonderful nation that you've allowed us to live in. We pray that your will would be done in all things, and thank you for what you're going to do now in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. As we think about ahead of Independence Day, why we should give thanks for America. Why should we? We could ask it as a question. Why should we give thanks for America? There are Americans who aren't really thankful for the country they live in. And they really don't think that there's anything particularly special about living here. And so this 4th of July will be the 243rd birthday of our country, and there are many Americans that won't give it a second thought. Why should we be thankful for the country that we live in? I thought we'd pause and think about that together. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything, give thanks. So that means in good things, bad things, hard circumstances, wonderful circumstances. And so certainly being thankful for the nation that God has blessed us with and allowed us to live in would fall into those categories even if you didn't like America. And you're living here. You should still give thanks in everything the Bible says. But I think we have a lot to truly be thankful for. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 to 17 is a very important passage that helps us as Christians to understand our relationship to whatever government we live in. This, this passage applies not only to Americans living in America, but it would apply to people living in whatever nation that they live in, whatever circumstance, however good or however difficult. Because these early Christians, remember, didn't live in a wonderful uh, place in terms of government, did they? They were under the thumb of authoritarian rule. And yet, God inspired Peter to write the words that I read right now. 1 Peter 2, beginning, let's start at verse 13 and read through verse 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free 
yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And so here Peter is trying to help Christians to understand how can they be followers of Jesus Christ, citizens of the kingdom of God, and yet also be citizens of the place where they're living on this earth. And he gives here direction. And that direction is still applicable today, as is everything we find in the Bible. Almost 243 years ago, July 2nd, 1776, in Philadelphia, the Continental Congress formally voted to separate from Great Britain, making independence official. That's right, July 2nd was the day that they actually voted to sever ties with Great Britain. John Adams, one of the delegates from Massachusetts, wrote the next day to his wife, Abigail. Here's what he wrote. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. He went on to predict in his letter, I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward forevermore. So if you've ever wondered why there are so many parades and, and fireworks and celebrations on the 4th of July, John Adams wrote on July the 3rd that July the 2nd was going to be the day that that was going to happen. Of course, John Adams got it right about the celebrations, but he got the date wrong. We don't celebrate July 2nd as Independence Day. Two days later... Two days later, on July the 4th, 1776, the Continental Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence. So on July 2nd, they voted to sever ties with Great Britain. And John Adams thought, that's going to be the day we're going to forever remember and celebrate. It actually became July the 4th, the date that the Declaration of Independence was adopted, that it became the day of celebration. Of course, the Declaration of Independence lays out the arguments for why the leaders of the 13 colonies believed they should separate from Great Britain. And so here we are, just as those Americans were at the very beginning. We're here to honor God Almighty and to thank Him for His intervention, for His acts that brought about the freedom of this country. And it's interesting that John Adams said that the celebration of independence for this country should always be accompanied by acts of devotion to God Almighty. So you're carrying on the tradition that John Adams said should always be true when Independence Day is remembered. 
They had such a deep sense that unless God was going to move in their midst, the country couldn't survive. They felt led to declare independence so freedom could exist, so that people could be free. And so we should be thankful for this Judeo-Christian heritage that we have in our country. You go back to the founding and you see it all through the founding documents. You go to Washington and look at the buildings and you see it written on the walls. It's always been a part of who we are. And the principles that are taken from the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, and throughout the New Testament became the bedrock foundation for our whole system of law and justice and why we believe that every person has dignity and worth because they're created in the image of God. If you take that away, if you don't believe every person is created in the image of God and given the rights they have, not a government giving people rights, but God gives people the right to live and to pursue happiness and to enjoy freedom. If you don't believe that, then, you, then it's easy to believe somebody can just take that away. If the government gives it, the government can take it away. But if you believe God gave us that right to live and to have the opportunity to pursue happiness and to worship as he leads us, then no one can take that away from us because God's the one who gave it to us. That's the Judeo-Christian ethic and bedrock that our country was founded upon. Now, does that mean everybody in America was then or should be now, has to be a Christian? Of course not. People are free to believe or not to believe. But even that is a Judeo-Christian principle because God gives us the freedom to accept his love and his grace or the freedom to reject it. We don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, there are consequences to that, eternal consequences to that, but God gives us freedom. And so, based on that principle, if God gives us freedom to choose Him or to reject Him, then people must be free in every respect. And therefore, we believe that people can believe or not believe. Our nation's history is founded upon that. In 2009, in May of 2009, our president at that time, Barack Obama, went to Turkey. He was doing a tour of Islamic nations. And in Turkey, he made the declaration that essentially America was not founded on Judeo-Christian principles. He was doing that as a way to appeal to Islamic nations. It prompted the U.S. News and World Report to print an op-ed, May, May the 7th, 2009. And here's what that op-ed said in U.S. News. Our nation's history provides overwhelming evidence that America was birthed upon Judeo-Christian principles. The first act of America's first Congress in 1774 was to ask a minister to open with prayer and to lead Congress in the reading of four chapters of the Bible. In 1776, in approving the Declaration of Independence, our founders acknowledged that all men are endowed by their creator 
with certain unalienable rights and noted that they were relying on, quote, the protection of divine providence, capitalized, meaning God, obviously. The Declaration of Independence laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity, said John Quincy Adams. Also, the signers of the 1783 Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War insisted the treaty must begin with the phrase, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. And I found this very interesting. In 1800, Congress approved the use of the Capitol building as a church. Both chambers approved the measure with President of the Senate, Thomas Jefferson, giving the approval in that chamber. Throughout his terms as both vice president and president, Jefferson attended church at the Capitol, including January 3rd, 1802, just two days after he wrote his infamous letter in which he used the phrase, the wall of separation between church and state. Nearly 100 years later, in 1892, in Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court held that America is a, quote, Christian nation. Why is that significant? Today, you have people who say that the separation of church and state means that all, all visible evidence of religion must be entirely erased from the public square. Is that what Jefferson really thought that meant? If he was worshiping every week in the U.S. Capitol building? I don't think so. No, separation of church and state means there'll be no government church. No government-sponsored or demanded religion. That's what the Church of England was, right? You had to be a part of the Church of England or you were persecuted. They didn't want that here. There is no state church or state religion, but we are free to exercise religion. That's what the First Amendment says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. People don't like to say the last part of that sentence. And so, no, the founders never thought that there should be a complete erasure of all things religious from the entire society. That has never been a part of what our nation was founded upon. And yet there are those among us today who try to lecture and tell us that we have no right in the public square to even speak the name of Jesus. That's not an American principle. Presidents Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Jackson, McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, Hoover, FDR, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Reagan all reference the importance of Judeo-Christian principles in the birth and growth of our nation. Some of you saw here just a few weeks ago D-Day on the celebrate the anniversary, the commemoration of that incredible invasion. They played the prayer. Franklin Roosevelt, a Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt prayed a six-minute prayer 
to, for God to bless our troops as they invaded Europe. There was nothing wrong with that. There would be nothing wrong with a president doing that today. And yet there are people that would absolutely have a stroke if a president did that today. Presidents of both parties have upheld that throughout the history of our country. And so we should give thanks that we live in a nation that was founded on these kinds of principles. It makes us very different from the other nations of the world. And we should be grateful for that. We should give thanks for that. Our national motto is, in God we trust. It's on our money. It's in the Star Spangled Banner. It's in the DNA of our country. We should then also give thanks for freedom of religion. We're here this morning, gathered here in freedom, aren't we? Now, does it mean we wouldn't gather, we wouldn't attempt to gather if we didn't have freedom? No, it doesn't mean that. There are Christians all over the world who, uh, who gather in very harsh and difficult circumstances. F the, the possibility of arrest or persecution is there every time they open a Bible or every time they gather together. But we don't live in that circumstance, and we should be grateful to God for that and would hope that all people someday could worship that freely. And so freedom of religion is something that we should never take for granted. The people who came to the shores of America first from Europe came here for what reason? So they could worship. They wanted to be free to worship God. And so when we gather together and worship God, we are doing what the people who founded our, our nation came here to do. We are carrying on that spirit of America. And then we should give thanks for freedom of speech. We could go through all the freedoms, but these are foundational, aren't they? Freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Because we don't have to be afraid to stand up and say what we believe the truth is. We're free to tell people about Jesus Christ, to share the gospel without fear of retribution and I hope and pray it will always be that way. We are salt and light. Jesus said you are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we are to use our speech and, our, and the actions of our lives to declare the truth of God. Because it's through the gospel that lives are transformed and people are brought to faith in Jesus. And so we should use the freedom of speech we have to be a blessing to our country by sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And then finally, we look at this passage, 1 Peter 2. We should give thanks for the freedom to serve. The freedom to serve the Lord. Notice that Peter said in verse 16, As free, living is free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for evil or a cloak for for vice. Now, the admonition here was given to people who were not free politically, but they were free in Christ. And so, real freedom, eternal freedom, comes when your life is in the hands of Jesus, when you receive Jesus Christ into your life. There are people all over the world who will never live one day in freedom the way we do political freedom. 
freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. All There are billions of people who will never live one day, one minute in freedom the way we enjoy every day. But they're still free. They're free because Jesus has set them free. They live in Jesus and Jesus Christ lives in them. And they are going to go to heaven someday, just as we will go to heaven because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so we should give thanks to God that we can serve the Lord and help people come to real freedom. It's not enough to just be politically free. Are you free indeed? Are you ready to stand before God? Are you ready to go to heaven? And so Peter here is asking about that freedom. Essentially, how are you using your freedom? As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for evil. We could ask that of both our political freedom and our spiritual freedom. How are we using it? Are we using it as a cloak for evil? Do we think we've gotten a get-out-of-jail-free card and therefore we can do whatever we want to do? Well, freedom does not mean you're free to do anything you want to do. There are laws to limit what we do, right? We can't harm other people. We can't uh, walk up to somebody and hit them in the face just because we want to. Or we'll have to pay the consequences. And so freedom should not be seen as a cloak for evil. And yet we have a lot of people in our country who are using their freedom. And they're spending every waking minute trying to figure out what, what else they can do that is evil. To tear down the society. And to really bring harm to others. That isn't what freedom is for. And our spiritual freedom. Our political freedom is to be used for good, to serve God. Notice what he says there in verse 16. But as bondservants of God, our freedom should be something we embrace as a gift from God that we might use it for the glory of God and to do the things God would have us to do. We're free to do that. So we should. And then notice what will happen when we do. Verse 15 for this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You know that word ignorance there is the word agnosia in the Greek. Agnosia. From which we get the word agnostic. There are people who proudly say, oh, I'm an agnostic. Do you know that the word literally means ignorant? They're saying proudly, oh, I'm ignorant. I'm ignorant. We put to silence the foolishness of the ignorant when we live out our Christian faith in the freedom that we have. Christ has set us free from sin. And we're doubly blessed to live in a free country so that we might live out the Christian faith. And declare the glory of God with our very lives. The way we live. The words we say. Let the agnosia. Let the agnostic. Let the ignorant. Spew and 
and say all they want. It's our quiet faith, living for Jesus, sharing Christ, just as all the generations of Americans before us, that is what has built such a wonderful place. And that's what will change the lives of people. We silence the agnosia by living out our faith. Charles Spurgeon made the comment, Ignorance, you see, is a noisy thing. An empty drum makes a loud noise when it's beaten. And empty men, like empty vessels, often make the most sound. How then are we to silence this noisy ignorance? By argument? No, for it is not amenable to argument. Ignorance is to be silenced by well-doing, by doing good. Holy living is the best reply to an infidel talking. And so remember that God has put you here as a Christian in this country, wherever he puts us, that we might live out the Christian faith, sharing Christ with all that we come into contact with, living out the principles that he has taught us, and in so doing, it speaks volumes. It says so much. Let the godless say whatever they want. Let's keep living for Jesus. In that vein, a poet named Gilbert wrote, You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do, by the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Our lives ought to be sharing the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that everyone that we encounter will know that it is Jesus who can set you free, free indeed, eternal life found only in him and then in that closing verse four statements very short and sweet here's the here is the prescription wherever you live whether it's a good government or a bad one whether it's an evil king or a wonderful leader who loves god here's the principles honor all people be respectful and and honor everybody treat everyone as if they are made in the image of God, because they are. Love the brotherhood. Love the people of God. Be a part of the people of God. Strengthen the church and share Christ with the world. Fear God. Put Him first. Because He's the one who created all that is. And finally, honor the King. Honor the king. You know, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican, whoever the president is, I was taught by my parents that we should honor the office. We should be respectful of the office. And how the person in the office comports themselves, their policies, the things that they do, they'll have to answer to God for that, for the way they use the authority that God gave them. 
we should honor the office and be respectful of the person, whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not. I think we've lost that in our country. I think we've lost that. And we as Christians need to lead the way in praying for all of those in authority and being respectful. Honor the king. Honor the king. Whether he's good or bad, right or wrong. We do it because the office was created by God and we must believe that God is at work in all things. And God sometimes uses people that we would never suspect Never pick. Go back through the Old Testament and look at the people God used. They're not people that you would have picked out or I would have picked out. But he picked them out. And he accomplished amazing things. And so we just have to trust God. And so as we honor the king, we do so recognizing that it is the king of kings that we serve. And we respect him enough to respect all of those in authority. And when we do that, we help to point the way to the ultimate king, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And so why should we give thanks for America? Because God has blessed us with an amazing nation. And we're a part of a heritage. We carry it on. We teach it to our children and our grandchildren. And we hope that as long as the Lord tarries, until he comes again, that this will be a place of freedom. Freedom to worship, freedom to praise, and freedom to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your presence here. Thank you for this wonderful nation that you've allowed us to be citizens of. Help us to be the best citizens we can be. We don't check our Christianity at the door when we talk about being a citizen of America because you've put us here to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. And so help us to faithfully do that every day. Help us, Lord, to live for you. And when we live for you, we'll be the best citizen we could ever be. So, Lord, in this time of decision now, perhaps you've been speaking to someone here. We've talked about Judeo-Christian principles, but really, until it becomes true in your heart, you don't understand how wonderful it is to know Jesus. So if there's someone here who needs to ask you to come into their life, to forgive their sin personally, may this be the moment they're willing to say, Jesus, I need your help. I'm a sinner, and I know you died for me. Please forgive me. Come into my life. I give my life to you. And, Lord, we know that if they'll say that prayer, you will respond. You will do what you promised to do, and we'll give you praise for your salvation. There may be Christians here who need to rededicate their life to you. Lord, we want your will to be done, and so you lead us now. And may we respond publicly or privately in the way that you lead us. And we'll give you the praise for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation.